0: Well, as we're getting started, uh, we're going to wrap up David and Goliath today and then move into chapter 18, hopefully cover 18. And, uh, but I want to start by celebrating something together as a church. Um, you may not know, <clears throat> many don't, that um, in our, at, at South Spring, any money that comes in to South Spring, um, a certain percentage goes back out to other ministries, to other churches, to other missionary groups, to other nonprofits. And, uh, and for a long time, that was uh, 10%. And over the last couple of years, we bumped it up to 12%, and then this year to 15% um, of the money that comes into the church goes out and so uh, to other ministry organizations. So um, just this last week, that team that, that decides, designates who to give those funds to, um, designated over half a million dollars. Um, to be given away to other ministries and organizations over this next year. Um, These are several of them up there on the screen. Um, We'll rotate through a few of them. And I just want to let you guys know, I mean, this is some stuff, the kind of stuff I see, reports I see all the time, but you guys don't get to see um, that we are partnering with dozens and dozens of different ministries and organizations and missions and that, uh, that 15% working towards 20% uh, of all of the money that comes into South Spring goes out to other ministries and organizations. So um, anyway, we boast in the Lord and what he's been doing and the fact that we get to be a part of it. And um, I love that we are giving church, uh, and that we're able to do that kind of stuff, and also that we're ascending sending church. So uh, over the last few weeks, you've gotten to meet a few different people who we're sending into the mission field um, over the next few weeks and months. Um, the Ezels we, we celebrated, and they are now in the Dominican Republic. Um, and getting to work and uh, and in fact this morning we'll also be celebrating carly manuel who is um, who has been here on staff for several years and she is wrapping up the last few months of preparation and uh, and intends to be heading off to greece um, to share the gospel there in a few months and so we'll be celebrating her and praying over her at the end of the service as well I love to be a church that gives, and I love being a church that sends. And so if, uh, if that's in your uh, as well, if that's part of your calling as well, uh, I'm excited to get to be a part of it. Um, so we are wrapping up this story. It's kind of fascinating. We spent two whole weeks doing the buildup um, to the fight between David and Goliath, and which should teach us quite a bit um, that, in fact, the, the purpose of this passage is the buildup. The main power is meant to be found in the buildup. Because today we're going to cover the, count them, two verses that cover the battle between David and Goliath. Um, The actual fight between David and Goliath, there are only two verses, a very few sentences, because the build up to the event is I think where we're supposed to learn the main lessons. For example, that we should be faithful in the everyday, small, seemingly insignificant things that God tells us to do. And that in that faithfulness, we look to Him to be the source of our significance, the source of our power, the source of our uh, purpose. And today we're going to see the way that even plays out. Um, But to have the right picture in mind, you're imagining, hopefully, um, I I still stand by this, an 11 or 12-year-old boy, um, who would not even look like an 11 or 12-year-old boy today would look, um, but smaller than that probably um, but 11 or 12-year-old boy, I still think that's correct, who, who has been working out in the field, and he has walked out. You've got the armies of Israel on one hillside of the valley. You've got the armies of the Philistines, if you picture them in all of their glory and shining weapons and armor, and they've been out there for 40 days, and then down in the middle comes the champion every day. He is allowed to come down in. He, he comes down by coming down into the no man's land to the in-between. Um, he then becomes the champion. That's what champion means. And now for the first time in 40 days, this monster who would have been covered, he would not have been wearing blue. There's a little bit about this art um, that's a little inaccurate. He would have been wearing head-to-toe bronze scales. Um, and on his head would have been a big puff of, of probably red or, or yellow feathery type of stuff meant to combine with his beard to create the sense of a lion. And so you have this giant monstrosity standing out in the middle uh, of the no man's land with his shield bearer. And now joining him in the middle is a shepherd boy who probably comes up. No, not kidding. No, certainly not past his hip. And here comes that shepherd boy and he comes out there and he's carrying the couple of sticks that shepherds carry, the rod and staff. He's carrying a sling. Um, I don't know that he had him if he he potentially had a military sling, a bigger one. Um, as we looked at the last couple of weeks, chances are he had a shepherd's sling, which is nothing more than something very similar to this. Um, uh, and, and he would have gone out there, and what happened is, they go back and forth, they have a little mocking contest, and David um, enrages Goliath, Goliath takes that 15 pound spearhead, and begins to charge, across the last distance between him and David, whatever that is, 50 feet, 100 yards, we don't know, but somewhere down in the valley of Elias, the two of them face off and shout at each other, Goliath then begins to take his spear, and charge, and, what we read was that as this terrifying um, train engine of a person is charging down on David, roaring. The, the crowds are jeering, thousands of people on both sides yelling and screaming and jeering and, and, and catcalling and, and all the different things you would expect. It would make a baseball game or a basketball game or a football game like nothing um, to imagine. These tens of thousands of people, life and death is on the line. The champion is there. Everyone, this is a foregone conclusion. This champion is going to squash David like a bug. And that's how this is going to play out. And it says he charges at David, and David, the Scripture tells us, sprints toward Goliath. And which is always shocking to me. I think in a moment like that, my legs would be locked up like they were made out of concrete. Um, and the thought of being able to stand and fight would be hard enough. The thought of rushing forward is unthinkable as David, this boy, rushes forward, taking the sling in his hand, not a slingshot. -get Get the East Texas out of your head. This isn't a wrist rocket. This is a sling. It's a much more deadly weapon. He takes it and whips it over his head several times and releases the stone by releasing the string, and the stone launches out. Maybe a big old stone like this Um, something like a billiard ball at somewhere they've clocked them at 80 miles an hour um, coming out of the end of a sling and so this thing smacks into the head of Goliath and of course not surprisingly crushes his skull when it does so hits him in the one place where uh, Philistine armor isn't which is right square over the face hits him square between the eyes and the forehead crushes the skull um, which probably why Greek later they probably that's why they wore that little nose piece probably just for stuff like that they're like they heard this story like hey Um, so anyway so that smacks them square, it, it crushes a skull, um, he falls down, um, and some people try to make something of the fact that he falls forward, they try to write something spiritual in that, I mean maybe, but chances are it's because you have 300 pounds of man plus 150 pounds of armor moving forward fast, you get hit in the head, that's not going to be enough to jerk you all the way backwards, it's not like he got yanked by a rope, he then hit his head, crushes his skull, and he falls face down, probably within inches of David's feet, at least that's how I picture it. Um, As he crashes there at David's feet, and all of a sudden, all the noise in the Valley of Elah just stops. It would have been as sudden a silence as anything you could possibly imagine, as if everyone at a baseball game suddenly at the same moment knew to get totally still and quiet. It says in 1 Samuel 17, 49, David put his hand in his bag and took out a sling and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead and the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face on the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Now I want to take just one second and point something out. I think sometimes we overdo this. We overdo there. There is no doubt all glory, all glory goes to God. All power comes from God. All significance and meaning. These are all, God is the source of all these good things. But I do want you to notice that Scripture does not take the human out of this. The Scripture does not pretend like David is not involved. Verse 50 says, So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and stone. So as we engage with this idea that God is at work here, And God's accomplished a mighty thing here. What we don't want to do is get the impression that somehow David is a puppet. David is a passive member of this. Remember, it is the faith of the bread and cheese that brings us to this moment. It is the exact same faith that sends that stone hurtling through the air toward Goliath that sent David to the battlefield in the first place, just being faithful with some small, ridiculous assignment that he's given. Just being faithful in some small thing that seems unimportant. Um, I used to have a pastor who loved pointing out that the one time Thomas missed church is when Jesus showed up in person. Sometimes being faithful to the Lord is about going to church. Sometimes being faithful to the Lord is about going to work, some small thing. Sometimes being faithful to the Lord is about changing a diaper that you don't want to, certainly if it's in the middle of the night and it's not your turn. That is, that is a miracle of the Lord, if you can get up out of bed and do that kind of thing, right? These are seem small and insignificant, but you never know when one of these thousands and thousands of small insignificant acts of faith put you in a position to slay a giant. So that's the situation, that's the message here. God gets all the glory and all the boasting is in Him. But, and let me rephrase that. God gets all the glory and all the boasting is in Him. And we are involved. Those are not contradictory concepts as sometimes they are taught in the evangelical church. The truth is, we our faithfulness matters to Him. He does not need us, He does not require us, but he makes use of our faithfulness in amazing ways. Keep in mind, the same spirit that empowers David empowered Saul. And Saul was faithless, and so this narrative changed. We are active participants, and in two verses, it's over. The giant is face down in the middle of valley of Elah. There is silence in every direction, like Jesus calming the water. It was unbearably loud one second before. Now you have all of the Philistine army, who are absolutely not expecting this, in stunned silence. And suddenly, they realize something that the Philistines don't like to realize: the God of Israel has shown up on the battlefield. They aren't afraid of David. They're not afraid. They've been the only person, the only Jew they've ever been afraid of is Samuel. They're not afraid of any of these people right now. But all of a sudden what they realize is a new agent of God has come onto the field. He just slew our champion through the power of that God. Yahweh, the God of the Jews has arrived and we better get out of Dodge. Dodge we got to get out of here now and so the people of the philistia they turn they begin to run about that time i think probably the people of israel wake up to the fact that they just want a battle and like oh oh hey oh hey and they're running and the people of israel and here is david it tells us david cut off the head verse 60 verse 51 then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw their champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shaarim as far as Gath and Ekron. So there's a great painting. My favorite uh, Jewish artist from, who paints medieval, st- uh, I mean, uh, uh, Old Testament stuff um, painted this moment and uh, the idea of look how big the head is it's as big as David's torso as David takes a sword that's way too big for him and cuts off the head of Goliath the only error in there is that Goliath is wearing silver armor it should be bronze but that's okay Um, and so he cuts he's cutting off Goliath's head what a weird and macabre moment this is as David slices off his head and then takes it and holds it up for everyone to see And you can imagine that as he's holding it up, the people of Israel are now storming past him, charging past him toward the Philistines who have turned and are headed quite literally for the hills. Now, this is actually the picture that helped me understand maybe size dynamic here is this one. (laughs) Um, When you're talking about how big a head you probably are dealing with. You're dealing with, this is Andre the Giant, and the thought of carrying that head around, um, dripping gore the way it would have been, is just a crazy thought. The thought. And by the way, he wears his, head the way the Phil- his hair the way the Philistines might have, except he's missing the big beard. Just as big and puffy as he And so he, they would, you can imagine David picking up this head without the helmet and holding it up, and all of a sudden the people of Israel are charging past him as we see this. Now here's a fun detail just, just for fun. The word Shaarim, which shows up here, means two gates. That's what it means. It means two gates. Which is weird because you don't have in the Middle East, in Israel, you don't have cities with two gates. Um, You just don't ever do that. Cities have one gate. And so it it divides, it greatly restricts where the enemies can attack. They have one gate. So last time I was in Israel, in the Valley of Elah, our guide, and by the way, we'll go about this time, actually about last month, as of last year, about 11 months, we'll be going again, Lord willing. And uh, so make sure and let us know if you're interested in all that kind of stuff, because we get these, these kind of moments. So here we are standing in the Valley of Elah. The guide turns to me and says, "Do you see that dig up on the hill over there? You can see, the, see some tents up there and there's some stuff going on. And I'm like, yeah, what is that? And he goes, they found Shaarim. Just found it. Like it has just recently, relatively recently been discovered, the city of Shaarim. How do you know? Because it has two gates. And people in, in Israel, and it is, by the way, south of the Valley of Elah towards Philistia. So you can actually see the picture. There are two gates. You can see the front gate and the back gate. The reason there are two gates is because it's on a ridge line. And on the ridge line, what you would have is people coming up the ridge on one side on the path, going through the city and going down the rid- down, down back side of the ridge, um, up on, over, overlooking the Valley of Elah. There's probably a, a, a toll booth in the middle uh, somewhere in there, right? And so, so the people would have come up and over through the city. This, this has been found. The city uh, it has to be Shaarim. And this is the city. So it tells us in that passage that the, the Philistines wounded in this battle that escape through Shaarim are then dying probably from blood loss on their way to Gath and Ekron, which are the two nearest Philistine cities as they are running away from this battle. Again, once again, the Bible is the anvil around which the hammers lay broken. Um, we have found yet again evidence that it happens, that it is set up exactly the way the Bible describes it 3,000 years ago. All right. The Philistines break and run out of their fear of God, almost certainly. Verse 53, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, again, I want to go into detail here, but this almost certainly means eventually David took the head of the Philistine uh, goliath to jerusalem at this point in history understand david does not own jerusalem the jebusites live in jerusalem david has not yet taken jerusalem and so he would not have taken it here now that would make no sense at all it probably is the, is the author's way of saying eventually where the head ended up and by that time hopefully a skull ended up was um, in jerusalem um, again how gross uh, David is hauling this head around everywhere, but also how 11, right? I mean, is there a more 11-year-old boy thing to do than to drag this head around everywhere that, you're go- that he goes to show off to his friends? Have I shown you that? Yes, you've shown us the head. Like that is a, that's probably a constant thing. And in this situation, he says, um, and he's chased his sisters around with it. You know he did. This is a, um, and by the way, in the Hebrew, very likely, this is not that it took it to David's tent. The H's should be capitalized. He took it to his tent tent meaning God's tent. We know the sword ended up in the tabernacle. We'll see that in a few chapters very likely the armor of Goliath because after all David acknowledged the battle belonged to the living God, so the spoils of the battle are going to be God's, not David's. And so David, though an active member, is going to give over the credit and glory to the living God and the spoils. Now, one other little factor stands out to me that I have to mention because it's one of my very favorite things about David. And it'll be a long time before we get there, even if we do go straight into 2 Samuel. Um, I I want you to see, there's a theme over the next few weeks that's going to really stand out to you, I hope. Over the next few weeks, there's going to be a very powerful theme of friendship. And we use the term friendship as a cute little word for kids. Um, But the idea of friendship as presented here over these next few chapters is that it is outside the relationship with God, the apex power that a human being can experience. It is the, in my opinion, it is the only human relationship that is eternal. Um, All authority structure eventually goes away. In the kingdom of heaven, the fact that you're someone's boss now is meaningless. Um, In the kingdom, the authority structure, the, the org chart goes like this. Jesus, everyone else. That's how the authority structure goes. Marriage, especially the authority structure of marriage, gone in the kingdom. In the New Jerusalem, there is no such authority structure. Um, that doesn't exist. K- marriage itself apparently doesn't exist. Um, Ginger and I have agreed to be special friends, but apparently that's all you can do. All you can do once you're there, right? Uh, that was an early on conversation. Um, uh, so, can we live now each other? Anyway, so it's a like how how do we um, how do we pull that? Uh, all the rest of them. I'm telling you, I believe. Friendship is the only eternal relationship between humans and it does go on forever and ever and therefore only grows forever and ever. You would consider your greatest friend now would be insignificant compared to someone who you'd known for 10,000 years. And there will come a day when you've known people for 10,000 years. The power of this, and I believe friendship is nothing more than mutual discipleship. As we lead each other to Christ, we guide each other to Christ, we point each other to Christ. That's the real power of friendship. Um, I said early on, I had many pastors tell me if you're going to be a pastor, you can't be friends with the people in your congregation. You can't be friends with your leadership board. You sure can't be friends with your staff. And I said, I'm going to anyway. If it turns out that's not true, I'll quit because I have absolutely no interest in doing ministry with people who aren't my friends. My passion is doing kingdom work with my friends. And if it, if I can't do that, then I'll quit and I'll go find another way to do that. It turns out, I believe they were wrong. Um, I think the pow- the greatest power of being a pastor is the friendships and are the friendships that I get to have within this congregation. I would never turn that around. Um, I, I've been, I was, I had somebody the other day say like, isn't it hard being a pastor where you can't really be honest about what you're feeling, what you're experiencing? And my answer was, yeah, that would be hard. Um, that is not my life, not at all. Um, my failing may be the other direction, not, not towards hiding or, or not sharing or or whatever, I don't feel that way a bit. I, I get to do that here openly, and I I'm, I'm proud that I get to. It's an amazing place to do that. It makes me wonder if they're just wrong. And they could share, but they don't. And so instead, to step out, we see this model in this. And I want to share with you one of my favorite things about David, because I think it's amazing that David killed a giant. But I want you to hear this from 2 Samuel chapter 21. There was a war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David, by this time, older man. Went down, toward, uh, went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai the son of Zeruah came to his aid, attacked the Philistine, and killed him. That's one. Then David's men swore to him, you shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibbecai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. There was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan the son of Argim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whom spear was like a weaver's beam. A different Goliath, probably named after the original. And again, verse 20, there was war at, this, at Gath where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants of Gath, and they fell by the hands of David and the hand of his servants. These are the four, some people think David picked up five, four more rocks for, for these four. But to me what stands out is this, it is cool that David killed a giant. It is so much cooler to me that David raised up giants killers. That to me is even so much cooler. I love, this is, this is the, this is discipleship at its best. He, David has invested in this killer named Abishai, and we're going to meet Abishai several times, and Abishai is a killer. He invests in Abishai, and there comes a moment when David's life is in peril, because there is a giant, and David no longer in this moment has the strength to defeat this giant. Praise God that David had taught giant killing faith to his men, because then that man who David had discipled could step in and rescue David in that moment. They're right there. That is the power of friendship and discipleship. It's so amazing. The choice is here. Once again, we're going to see David model Jesus. It's one of the things that's best about David. Remember, if you remember, um, Samuel modeled Jesus. He was an anti-type. He was a type ahead of Jesus. Well, David's the next one, not Saul, David. David is going to do that again. Here's one of the things about David. Apparently, if you want to be David's friend, you're invited. You're invited to be David's friend. He's happy to be friends with you. He models our King Jesus again. When he says, come, no, no, come. Well, no one else likes me. That's okay. I'll be your friend. I'll be your leader. I, I will be the man who shepherds you. I will be the under shepherd who shepherds you. I will be happy to do that. Well, what if, what, what if I don't fit in? What if I'm not even a Jew like Uriah the Hittite and all these others? No, no, come join me, whatever, right? We see this, we see him model this so well, this picture of, I welcome those and draw those unto me, um, the mighty and the weak, the, those who yell and those who cry, he invite all of them come there. So here's what we see. We see him portray that again. And that's why we're going to see this imagery of friendship drawn out again and again over the next few chapters. 1 Samuel 17, back here, we get this weird little peak. All of a sudden, the writer goes back to give us a little insight into what happened. So David tries on Saul's armor. It doesn't fit. He leaves to walk down into the Valley of Elah and become a champion. Now, at the end of the chapter, we get this weird little section of verses to tell us about something that happened right as David left. Uh, verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner... Whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. Now this is just weird, right? This is how we know this is not being told chronologically. Just the last chapter, Saul loved David. Saul um, gave David blessings and honor. Saul had David come and live in his home and sing music to him all the time. Saul made David his armor bearer. So it's not, I mean, Saul isn't this far gone yet, right? He's not so delusional already that the David who has been performing all these roles in his kingdom shows up to kill the giant and same, and, and, and Saul goes like, huh? I've never seen this kid before. You might know who he is? And Abner, who would be the head of his army, who certainly would know David as being a member of the household, goes, I don't know, never met him before. I don't know whose kid that is. That was really weird. A kid just came in and threatened to kill Goliath and more weirdly, we just sent him out to go do it. And I don't, but no, we've never seen him before. Because at this stage, apparently they had not. And then we get verse 57 and as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of Philistine in his hand, of course, right? Saul's dra- D- David's dragging around this big gory head everywhere he goes into the king's tent. So he drags it in there and they- he won't let go of it, right? Um, The big gross head. All right, so he's not, he's hauling 58 and Saul says to him, whose son are you young man? And David says, what do you mean whose son I am? I've been in your king for like, no, that's not, that's not what he says because that hadn't happened yet. David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. So the writer is letting us know some, wherever this story goes chronologically, it goes before 16. It goes before all of those other roles, which again tells us David is probably a very young man. Then we jump into 18. 18, also, if we're not careful, we treat it as chronological. It probably should not be. um, Because somewhere in this process, this happens. Verse 18, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. An instant friendship is struck. Mutual respect is the start. David would have heard of the exploits of Jonathan. Jonathan has now experienced some of the exploits of David, and the two of them are super impressed by each other, and so they become fast friends immediately. Several weeks, again, we're going to be talking about the power of friendship, and my conviction is also going to be that David is a great example for the rest of us in this. As David's friends are, so David's life goes. When David has Jonathan around, David is going to make essentially no mistakes. After David loses Jonathan, we're going to see David begin to make bad decisions, including his friendships. Verse 2, And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and in the sight of Saul's servants. This is a summary little section here. It's telling us what has happened and what is going to happen. How long does this, a, a time period does this cover? We don't know. Could be days, could be weeks, could be decades that, that David served as Saul's hired killer. Um, it's impossible to tell. Chapter 18 feels so sudden that it's like Saul really loves David and they're awesome and Saul puts him in charge of everything. And then like the next verse, Saul hates him and tries to kill him. So there's a whole lot more going on during this than we have. That's okay. This is just a, a summary section. It seems to be clear that the relationship at some point between Jonathan and David became very significant. Um, the, and, and so what we have is this wild, this isn't just some nice, nice birthday present. Um, that Jonathan gives to David. Make sure you have the right context here. Keep in mind, remember, some of you probably caught this. This is not a robe torn away. This is not like the robe being torn from Saul by Samuel saying, just like you just tore the edge of my robe, Saul, so your kingdom will be torn from you like a robe. This, that's not what this is. This is Jonathan freely giving the robe of his royalty To David. What's happening here is that you have this character, David, and this is huge for us as we understand David. We're going to see this. We have this man, David. God is clearly blessing him. God is clearly working with him and through him. And we're going to see two different responses to to two different men who respond to the God's blessing poured out on David. The first one was Jonathan. Jonathan's response is, I see that God is at work at you. I see that God is in you. I see even, Jonathan somehow even picks up apparently that David is going to be the next king. Look down in chapter 23, in a few weeks we'll see this, verses 16 and 17. It says this, And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul my father shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Were any two men ever set up to hate each other more? Were any two men ever, Saul who who hates David and Jonathan, his son who is supposed to be the heir apparent, the next king of Israel, and instead what's going to happen is, David has been chosen in opposition to Jonathan's father, to be the king of Israel, the two of them should be at war the instant they meet each other. Especially when Jonathan realizes David's the next king. Jonathan's response should be like, no, no, I'm the next king. And you should see this tug of war going on and bloodshed between them as they fight over the robe of royalty. Not so. Jonathan, because of his courage and his faith and his grace, hands over the robes of kingship to David. God has chosen you to be the next king and I'm going to be your right-hand man. Unfortunately, that doesn't really happen. But that is Jonathan's goal. When, when reading this and discussing this with my dad years and years ago and how this story is so confusing to me in some ways, my dad said, just imagine for one second what would have happened if Saul had seen like Jonathan sees. If Saul had said, God has chosen David to be the next king, David, this mighty man, unstoppable in the power of God. And my son, Jonathan, unstoppable in the power of God. If he had made Jonathan and David his right and left-hand men, what would Saul's kingdom have become? What would it be like to have Jonathan and David as your top men? I mean, you just could go home and eat ice cream, right? I mean, let them just, they're just going to go conquer the world while you do whatever and get to, just rake in the credit, right? Like, hey, yeah, I was an awesome king. What's sad is uh, Saul is not going to take that attitude. So, uh, God's word is never... By the way, I'm going to comment on this for just one second. Let's not fall into some of the modern interpretations that show Jonathan and David's relationship being somehow romantic. Um, That is just raw revisionist history. There's nothing about that in this passage at all. That's the kind of thing that if it was there... I mean, this is the Bible, guys. It doesn't wink at sin, it doesn't go like, oh, there was a sin, we're going to sneakily reference the fact that there was sin going on between these two. That's not how the Bible handles sin, is it? Is that what you've experienced? No, is that what's going to do later when David becomes a murderer and an adulterer and a blasphemer and all? No, hey, that's not what's going to happen. We're going to get whole chapters about it. If that was going on here, there'd be a whole chapter called the sin of Jonathan and David, and we would have to stomach that one too, just like we have to do with David and Bathsheba. It's not here because it wasn't here. That is, it is revisionist to put that in there. It's not there. Let that go. Any of us who have true friendships know that the souls of two people can be knit together without it being romantic. That is not necessary. When I was five, I met a seven-year-old boy in my neighborhood named Jason that we had just moved into. Our souls were knit together. Together, We spent more hours together than apart over the next at least 10 years of our lives. It was, it was we were essentially inseparable. Um, we even had this, um, when we would hang out, our parents would somehow hang out, sometimes hang out, and, uh, and my, what we would do is when we could hear the conversation, we'd be playing, and we'd hear the conversation between the adults kind of winding down. And so we would go in and ask the parents a question, meant to initiate new conversation. And then we would strategically, we would plan like, okay, I'm going to go in and I'm going to ask your dad, because my dad was the best one to ask, and it was best if he asked. So Dr. Leg, I saw a tree today, and I wasn't sure what kind of a tree, and, and, and when my dad started talking, Dr. Leg was, he was going for 50 minutes, and so, and so you would, he would start, and then we would sneak off and go play again, and we'd be listening for the congress. and we, we, there were times when we managed to, st- to, to stall out leaving four or five hours that way, that we're just like, they're still hanging out and talking, and then we'd go play again, I'm not kidding that, that actually, that's not a, that, that happened all the time. We are sneaking we get up and we would be together until the very last second of the day when we were forced uh, to go home. And then we would get up in the morning before sunrise and meet where the road changes color on Appleby. I mean, on, uh, on rolling Hills drive or the road changes color between our two houses. And that's where we would meet first thing every morning. And it was a all day thing until the end of the day. Um, that was that our souls were knit together. Jason died 15 years ago of pneumonia after serving as a Navy SEAL for several years. And just now have I known Ginger as long as I knew Jason. It is a, it is a, this the friendship between young men and boys, especially you can imagine that this time in Israel during a time of war and difficulty under these settings you can imagine, and plus just playing with the head of Goliath alone would have taken up thousands of hours. <laughs> this is a, this is an obvious time chasing their sisters. And so this is a. Um, th- this is something that is very real and is not let's not sully it with something that is sin that is not there. Verse six as they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, uh, and with songs of joy and with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul notice, by the way, they came out to meet King Saul. They are celebrating Saul and his victories. The women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? Probably sounded like this They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands. And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. And as he did day by day, and Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear and thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Here, here's the to touching on these other passages. David was not only a killer and a leader now, but was still playing the role of musician and comforter for King Saul. God uses David's sword and God uses David's lyre. And in one of these times, Saul gets an idea to end the song and to end his own insecurity forever. It would not have worked. If he had managed to kill David here, he would not have been done with this problem. Because the problem was there were other people who were more famous and more potent and more faithful than Saul. And there always was going to be. And Saul would have had to kill them one after another after another. The second one probably would have had to be Jonathan. Saul is trying to solve an internal sin problem by changing an external factor. And changing external factors rarely change an internal problem just not how life works. It's not an easy solution. The internal securities could have been reframed so differently. The people were coming out and praising Saul for this. Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. What is it about Saul that Saul could not celebrate that? What is it about Saul that Saul couldn't go, yeah, darn right he has, and I picked him. What is it about Saul that Saul can't grasp that? I was thinking through all these different people. Like this, this is my my whole life is built on this principle: that there are people out there who can do things ten times as well as I can. So I hire them. Like I don't, I don't go like, oh, I can't have them around because that would make me look terrible. Like, no, that's not how leadership works. What is about that the soul doesn't get? Paul has Chris has solved his problems, but Paul has thousands of problems. But Paul has tens of thousands of problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Are we not smart to put him in that position? Are not so smart? Like that's, that's how I see that. Like I don't, I don't see that as a competition. Oh, Chris has visited people in the hospital, thousands of people, but the deacons have visited tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I hope so. Hundreds of thousands. Let's, let's crank those numbers up. The church, Chris has served um, several, several meals to people who were sick, but the church has given out tens of thousands of meals. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why would I see any of that as competition? I, I truly, I'm telling you, my brain does not see it this way. My brain won't do this with what it is that Saul is doing right there. Like I read that, and I'm like, Saul should be celebrating. Look at their celebrating me. I've said before that, that it's fun to have consultants stuff sometimes come in, mainly for the reason that the one, I know very quickly where they know what they're doing. Because the ones who don't know what they're doing or who are just kissing up, they will come and tell me something good about me. The ones who know what they're doing will come in and say, you put together an amazing team. Yeah, yeah that's right. And by the way, we are all, that's how team Works. If I'm on your team, if I win, that means you win. Understand? That's how team. That's what team means, right? That's it means if one of us wins, the other one also wins. That's how you know if someone's on your team. If you won, did they win? Then y'all were apparently on the same team, right? That has. That's how kingdoms work. If my, if the kingdom that I serve wins, and you serve the same kingdom, that means your kingdom won. When we in the church, when we see it differently than that, oh. Uh, my kingdom, uh, I'm not sure my kingdom is winning while this person's kingdom over here is winning. That means at least one of us is not serving God's kingdom. We're serving our own kingdom instead. The mindset should be this, the different, that we celebrate what God is doing in me and in others, even if he's doing it 10 times more powerfully in someone else. That's not somehow negative on me. I just, it breaks my heart. This, this concept of jealousy is so destructive It's so hard within families. Isn't it sibling rivalry, sibling jealousy, as siblings want to fight with each other? And it takes all of their childhood for you to continue to remind them over and over again. How do you not understand that if she wins, you win? And if she loses, you lose. That's what it means to be a family, to be a team, to be serving the same kingdom. This is how James references this. And you know James was famous for pulling punches. Not at all. James 3.15 says this, This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Jealousy is the root. It is demonic wisdom. When we can't be friends, we have to be competitors about even the blessings of God. Something is deeply, deeply broken. It is control and it is fear. It is represented by that spear. And let me tell you, Saul is super fortunate that David the giant killer didn't pick that spear up and run him through with it in self-defense. Because they'd have made David king like that. Saul is dead. Saul threw his spear at David. We all saw it. David picked it up and ran him through with it. Now we'll make David king. We're good. David has so many chances to make himself king over the next few years of his life, and he rejects every one of them. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and departed from Saul. Now I'm going to skip down a bunch of verses um, for this reason, they are all about the same message. The message is Saul is going to try one trick after another to get David killed. He's going to set him up to be killed by the Philistines three or four separate times. The last one is, is really a little gross when he tells, he finds out that McCall loves David. And so he says, the first one fails, the second one fails. He keeps sending him out to fight the Philistines, and David keeps winning. And finally, he says, I'm going to send McCall loves him, my daughter. Loves him, so I'm gonna set David up to be uh, my son in law, to be a new prince in Israel, to be the husband of the princess. So I'm gonna set this up, and in doing so, I'll get David killed. So he says from David, I don't need a price, I don't need a bride price, except a hundred Philistine foreskins. Now, that's the way you know they're Philistines and not Jews, because if you kill Jews, you can't get a foreskin as a trophy, right? And so he's going to kill Philistines. And David and his men, probably a thousand of them, go out and kill 200 Philistines and bring back, it actually says, by count, 200 Philistines. That was someone's job. Um, they, were not, whoever, they were not paid enough. Whoever they were, were, not, were. And so they count out 204 skins of the Philistines to prove that David has in fact killed 200 Philistines. McCall is now his wife. And Saul now has a bigger problem. The man who Saul was so afraid of and thought to calf killed instead is now a prince in his kingdom by him. So I'm going to jump all the way down to, <clears throat> to verse 28. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that McCall Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. Isn't that how that works? But so Saul was David's enemy continuously, continually. Now stop right there. Stop cold. Look at what the beginning of that says. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David. You want to know how powerful jealousy and envy are in our lives? They can put you in a position to make yourself an enemy of somebody that you know is on God's side. Man, who, who does that? Hey, this guy killed a nine and a half foot tall giant. I think I'll be his enemy. That does not seem smart to me. Hey, here's what I know for sure. Everyone in the kingdom loves this guy, especially God. God is blessing him and I can see it. Now, I don't always know who God is blessing and who he isn't and neither do you. We're not allowed to know and we often don't know. You go, well, what, how, what would be the signs? Is, is success the sign? Be careful. Because John, David's about to spend several years of his life hiding in caves. doesn't sure look like God's with David at that point. Be careful that you don't actually put the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and Jesus Christ in a position to not be on God's side. That's part of the health and wealth teaching that makes it such a heresy and a dark, evil heresy at that, is the idea that if God loves you, He will bless you with physical blessings. And very quickly what you have is David in his most faithful being not blessed by God, and certainly Jesus, the Apostle Paul, and Peter being not blessed by God, and I wouldn't go there if I were you. Instead, what we have here is this, this delusional, I see that God is with David, and I'm still going to be his enemy. Jealousy is death on a stick. This idea that we're in competition with one each other for God's blessings, it is death. It, is, it misleads us in incredible ways. It deludes us. It turns us into self-absorbed, narcissistic, entitled cowards. And worse, blind to the truth. We can't see how ridiculous we are. When you find yourself absolutely certain of your own righteousness before God, you're in deep trouble. Um, You should always recognize the humility that we can be the one who's misunderstanding. Always open to this. The Lord is with him, and he is setting himself against the one who is on the Lord's side. That's vitally important for us to understand. We see this man who God is blessing, who is a man who is faithful, who is a good friend, who is a faithful servant, and you have two different men in their responses to this. One says, here's my robe. Here's my sword. Right? You have my bow and my axe and my sword. I see that you are the chosen one and I put these things before you. Someday I just want to be your right-hand man as you become king. What a humble, righteous, gracious, and courageous attitude Jonathan has. We see that. That's one response to when we are offered by the one in charge, when we're offered by God himself, when Christ comes and says, come and join me. Come and join me. Come be my friend. Come be my son and daughter. Come join me in this kingdom. Come be my brother and sister. One response is to say, hey, let me find all the, all the trappings of my royalty and let me hand them over to you. You'll be king and I want to be by your side. What a great picture of salvation. Or you can say, I can't tolerate that. I'm the one who's got to be king. I'm the one who's got to be king in my own life. I'm going to set myself against this and against this message and against this understanding and fight it with everything that I have. And I want to be able to see how arrogant I am. This is a picture that I think is meant to be seen here. I think it's a good question for each of us. In fact, go ahead and stand as we're preparing our hearts for a few moments of silence and singing to, to think through what God is teaching us. Where are we in our friendship with him? And then as we're going to be learning over the next few weeks, where are we in our friendship with one another? Where are we in those friendships? How does that play out? In our homes, marriages with our kids, how does that play out in our friendships? I got to spend some time this week with a a man. We've done this with our kids and where I go to the kids and and the the three oldest so far and said at about age 14, 15, um, who are some men and women who you know that we know who you respect, who are our friends who you respect. And I love the fact that my kids have always been able to name a couple of dozen different adults who they know are my friends or Ginger's friends and who they respect. I couldn't have done that as a kid. I couldn't have done that. My, my, I don't feel like my dad had a whole lot of friends who I could look to that way, as wise as he was in so many ways. Um, that was something that I think that most men from that generation really struggled with. and I think many of today do as well. So this man asked his 15 year old son for a list of names and I was on that list and I got to sit down with him and watch these men just, men go over the top in this moment. I mean, when we've done it with our kids, we've had gifts given and songs written for the, I'm not kidding, songs written for the moment. Like this is something that we crave, all of us. We crave these men and women able to speak into our lives. We need the, the gospel spoken to us over and over again by one another. I want to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we examine our own lives, starting verse 25, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards and not many were powerful and not many were noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. The very words of God.